All right, thank you guys. Uh, proud of our students. I know they've had a great weekend. And thank you, church family, all of you that were involved in making our Disciple Now weekend a uh, success. Uh, this is always a formative time for uh, many of our students. Uh, later in life, many of our students will look back and say that it was a Disciple Now weekend where they really came to understand the, their faith and uh, what it means to live out their faith. And so it's through your gener generous gifts that we are able to continue to have these kind of ministries, what you saw Evan giving testimony to, that's you church family that are making these kind of uh, creative ministries possible and uh, we're grateful for that. Now I know our students are heavy eyed probably after a long weekend. I've actually made an editorial decision. I've cut the sermon in half today. I bit off more than I could chew. I originally wanted to do Romans chapter 14 all the way through chapter 15 and verse 13 uh, because there's some redundancy in there saying the same thing. I got about two points in this morning and I realized I need to shut this thing down a little bit. It was going on. So uh, we're going to try to make it through uh, chapter 14 and we'll save the other two uh, points that I have for uh, next week and they, they'll build upon uh, each other in a way that I, I think will add to it. But I want to uh, invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. If you're watching online, uh, take your Bible, your smart device, follow along with us. There's always so much more to be gained uh, with an open Bible, reading it, taking notes of what uh, is being said. These things become, uh, this becomes information that sticks to you more readily if you write it down, if you study it, if you contemplate and reflect upon it. And that's always our anticipation of how God is going to speak to us through his word. I would challenge each one of us to think about this, this question, what, what incidentals have you imposed upon your understanding of the Christian faith? Incidentals, by incidentals, I mean things that are in, indifferent, things that are non-essential to the life of faith. But my experience has been that every generation imposes upon the life of faith things that, that are not really binding in scripture. Now I'm not talking about sinful things where the word of God clearly defines something as sin. It's sin. Now I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kinds of things that are non-essentials. It's what Paul's talking about in our passage today. Every generation has non-essentials that they bring to the life of faith and these non-essentials strangely in their mind become the litmus test of measuring whether or not someone is serious or not really serious about their, their faith. Let me give you an example from uh, a past generation. When I first started in the pastorate, I was about three months into my first pastorate. There was a knock at the door about seven o'clock on a Saturday night. It was uh, a active senior adult couple in the life of our church and I invited them in to the parsonage and uh, we started talking and I asked him, I said, well, did, are you guys coming or going to your, to your Sunday school class party tonight? I knew that their department was having a Sunday school gathering at the fellowship hall of, of the church. And the, the, the gentleman offered, well, pastor, that's why we're here. We just left there. You wouldn't believe what's happening down there. You wouldn't believe what they're doing in the fellowship hall. And I thought, oh my goodness, you had visions of a kegger and jukeboxes breaking out. You know, I didn't know what was going on down there. And I said, well, well uh, Robert, what is it that's, that's bothering you? He said, after that wonderful meal, fellowship meal we had, 
He said the men all started folding up the eight-foot banquet tables, putting them up, and then they started going out to their trucks and bringing in card tables, and they're all down there in the fellowship hall playing dominoes right now. And I said, okay. And I didn't realize how upset I was supposed to be by all this, and apparently he was frustrated that I wasn't upset by this, and uh, he, just wouldn't, he just wouldn't let it go. It was like he anticipated me go marching down to the church and, uh, you know, announcing, you brood of vipers, you have made my father's house into a, a parlor of games or something. That wasn't going to happen. Finally, he just kept going on. He was getting frustrated. I was getting frustrated, and he was frustrated I wouldn't do anything, and finally I just said, I said, Robert, if, if this is something that bothers you, if this is something that, that, that bothers your conscience, then you did the right thing by leaving. That was an incidental. That's really what Paul is dealing with. Now, Paul is dealing with non-essential issues, indifferent issues like food, drink, certain days. That there are some within the church at Rome, perhaps, maybe, there's really no evidence of any schism. He has certainly seen it at Corinth from where he writes. Uh, but Paul's concern is that certain things will creep in that are incidental, that are, that are, that are neutral in and of themselves and can cause division in, in the body of Christ, in the local church. But every generation has its incidentals. My experience as a pastor, it's been incidental, like I mentioned, dominoes, cards, dice. You know, some people would say, oh, you can't play any games that have dice. And I even know one man, a pastor, uh, he, he'll, he would not ever play a dice game unless it's Yahtzee, then it's okay. I don't know where you draw the line on this stuff. Incidentals, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's tobacco, maybe it's movies that you go to, maybe it's, it's television. There's all, these, there's all these incidentals, things that, that are neutral in and of themselves. That individuals, for whatever, for whatever reason, they, they embrace these things, these neutral things, and ascribe to them some kind of authority or and some sort of litmus test for measuring and evaluating and judging other people and whether they're insiders or outsiders, whether they are serious about their faith or not very serious about their faith. Now, you have to consider, again, the context from where Paul is writing. Paul is in Corinth, writing to the church at Rome. And Paul is in the very middle of a, of a situation, the context from which Paul writes, there's an incidental issue that, that has brought some division and conflict to the church at Corinth. And it has to do specifically with, with meat that has been uh, offered as sacrifice. You can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and look at this, those first 13 verses. It's also in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians there in um, chapter 10 and going to, to chapter 11. But there, there's become a, an incidental issue, a non-essential issue, at least for Paul, that, that the congregation is, is divided perhaps over this meat, whether meat should be eaten that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, there's no reason to think, as we read chapter 14, Paul sitting in Corinth as he's writing, there's no reason for us to think as we read this in Romans 14 and 15 that there is some great schism that has taken place that Paul is having to, having to address in Rome. Paul's never been to Rome. 
Nor is there, apparently there's, there's no evidence in the letter that he's had any prior correspondence with Rome, that they have appealed to Paul to resolve an issue such as he's addressing here. We know Paul's concern in writing the book of Romans is the westward expansion of the gospel message. Paul envisions the day that he can come to Rome and that Rome is going to be the launching pad. Rome is going to be the base of operations for Paul's missionary journeys to Spain, which at that time was considered to be the uttermost parts of the earth, the end of the earth. And so Paul's anticipation is, and, and listen, Paul's not naive. Paul understands that the impartiality of the gospel, that the impartiality of God means that you're going to attract, that the church is going to draw people from all walks of life. The impartiality of God has brought together Jews and Gentiles, barbarians and Greek, wise and foolish, weak and strong. And whenever you bring people from all of those diverse backgrounds together, uh, they all bring their own baggage. They all bring their own background to bear on their present life context. And it, it's just natural there is going to be social conflict. And so Paul's greater concern, as he begins writing here in chapter 14, is not for the unification of the church, that we all look alike, that we all have the same lifestyle, that we're all pursuing the same. What Paul is for is not so much unification as he is unity. Having had his experience in Corinth, having seen what is happening to the Corinth church and its divisiveness and its individualism, Paul's concern is, is that if Rome's going to be a launching pad, when I get there, listen, I don't want these kind of petty things, these non-essential things to, to creep into the life of the church. Paul's concern is much larger for the mission of the church, and he wants the church at Rome as he would desire for every local congregation. He desires a spirit of unity a spirit of peace in a world that is divided, in a world that is warring with one another. A part, a vital part of our witness as the people of God is even with all of our baggage, even with all of our background, even with all of our diversity, even with all of our preferences and our personal opinions. He wants us to be a people that are unified, that have a unity of mind and spirit as to what we're about and what our mission is as the people of God. And so what you're going to find, if you're familiar with the situation at Corinth, if you have immersed yourself before in the, in the book of Corinth, the, the letters to the church at Corinth, these words are gonna sound very familiar, but they're more general. In the chapters that I alluded to, they're in 1 Corinthians, they're in chapter eight and, and in chapter 10, Paul, Paul speaks with, spe with specificity. He, he, he offers specifics as to how we're going to handle this situation. What he does is he takes those same principles that he's established in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. Now in chapter 14 and 15, he's going to speak in generalities. No reason to think that there is a schism there in the church of Rome. So he is speaking in terms of generalities that maybe you can avoid in all of your rich diversity. Let me give you some guidelines. Let me give you some instructions. Let me give you some thought, a way to think about how the church maintains its unity even when all these non-essentials are present among us and how we think and how we live out the life of faith. Now, the first thing that, that Paul would say in this first half of, of chapter 14, the first thing 
that he would have us to be aware of in the body of Christ with all of our diversity and all of our understandings and where we are in a season of life and where we are in our faith journey, whether we're young in the faith or old in the faith, Paul would have us to know that there are acceptable differences between those the Lord has accepted. There are acceptable, there are ex- acceptable difference, differences between the Lord's accepted. That there's things that we can live with. You may have, you may have a strong conscience about some things. You may have, you may have strong conscience about, about a particular kind of lifestyle issue. That's a non-essential to me. I'm at a place in in my relationship with the Lord, in my understanding of of God's justice, of how I'm justified by faith. Uh, I'm just at a different place. And that what maybe is an issue of conscience for you, lifestyle issue, that's not not essential for me. And so it's it's a very real possibility that when it comes to lifestyle in regard to non-essentials, that there are acceptable differences between those that have been accepted by the Lord, which he'll refer to in verse three. Well, let's pick it up in here in verse one. He says, now accept, that is receive, welcome. Not, not begrudgingly, but receive them welcome without conditions. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. Now weak in faith, he's not trying to categorize categorize any one particular ethnic group or any one particular kind of believers. Uh, Any one of us could fall into this camp as being weak. When he talks about those who are weak, he's talking about any individual who has a conscientionable objection, who as a matter of conscience has objection to some things. That there are some believers among us that, that, that have an aversion to certain lifestyle practices because of their conscience. It's just something they, they can't bring themselves to do. Paul says in verse two, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak, that is who has a conscience about some things, he who is weak eats vegetables only. Well, only vegetables may be a reference to uh, uh, the idea that maybe some Jewish people, some Jewish believers may have an aversion to eating meat that hasn't been properly butchered. Goes back to their growing up years and their familiarity with the dietary, dietary laws, maybe like, like Leviticus chapter 7. And because of those old digital files that are in their, in their mind that have been a part of their faith journey, now they just can't bring themselves to eat meat. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who, has, who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Now, what I think Paul is doing here, there's really no, there's really no particular evidence that, that the Jewish people had an aversion to meat or wine in general. I think what, what Paul is doing here for the sake of principle of making a point, I think Paul is, is, I think Paul is really 
developing for us, building for us a fictitious scenario of extremes. A lot of exaggeration, a lot of hyperbole in his example. That you have this one extreme, people who eat, who eat vegetables only, and then you have this, this other extreme where, where people eat all things. And his point in giving this contrast between these two extremes is to say that both are accepted by the Lord. Yes, even on these incidental issues, these non-essential issues, even that one who has liberty and, and freedom and in all things, one who still, as a matter of conscience, just can't bring themselves to, Paul, Paul says both are accepted, they're welcome, they're received by the Lord without condition. And so the one who eats, the one who has liberty, is to regard, is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. That's a tendency in the church. When I, by conscience, have decided I'm not going to do some, some things, it's a very real temptation to judge those who do those things. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. The one who has liberty, the one who eats, can say, look down upon others. Well, they're just not as advanced spiritually as I am. Whereas those who still have a conscience can look at others and judge them as somehow being less spiritual than them. But here's what Paul says. Who are you? You find yourself in any of those situations described in in verse 3. Paul's response is, who are you to judge the servant of another? Who are you to judge a servant of the Lord? Someone that I have accepted, that I have received, but this person holds holds opinions on on non-essential issues to me. Paul says, who are you to judge judge another? To his own master. He stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Again, you have to go back to Paul's context, the day of, of master and Enslaved, which is just a, a natural part of that economic system in that, in that day and time. It's how the world operated and lived. And Paul's not making any judgments or evaluations on, on that subject. But, he say, but his example is, 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 why would you ever go, why would you ever measure and evaluate and judge another man's servant? Why would you take that upon your, yourself? And so the point is, why, why, would, you, why would you judge and, and evaluate the life of someone who has been received by the Lord, who is a servant of the Lord, that is no less committed than you are, but they've got some lifestyle differences? Not only does your opinion and your evaluation and your judgment carry no force, That's an infringement upon the Lord to whom belongs judgment. You're infringing upon something that that belongs only to God. Let me me put it in real real world terms. I've had to learn that as a grandparent. (laughs) Where I've crossed the line and infringed into a place where, where I didn't belong. Where I saw some things as a grandparent that I thought needed to be dealt with and told my, my son, well, here's how I would handle this. 
boy, I was very quickly put, put in my place, what my role is. I had infringed where their authority alone mattered, not mine. Another example regarding days, Paul says one person, this is another issue of conscience for some people. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and, and, and yet gives thanks to God. Now, Paul assumes, listen, Paul assumes that each one of these individuals, the one that still has a conscience about some things, the other one that has freedom and liberty, the assumption of Paul is that each one is given thoughtful contemplation of their position. This one that would regard one day above another, probably a reference to the Sabbath. Probably a believer of, of, of Jewish background. And again, because of their background, because of the, the digital tapes that, that, are, that are wired into their head, they, they're probably thinking in terms of worship, they're thinking, they're thinking of Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, and the, command, the commandment to honor the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Listen, it's hard to unwrite those tapes, to just erase those digital tiles as if, as if they've never existed. But then you have those, like me, like Paul, that would say, you know, I see every day as being special. I see every day as being a day that I pursue the honoring of the Lord, the glorifying of the Lord, the worship of the Lord, that no one day is more sacred than any other day. Oh, we can easily fall into that trap. You know, pastors have to, you know, pastors have to keep it linked at, at arm's length, keep it bay. Sentimentalist in the life of a church that, that always want to, to impose upon the church the observance of holidays, certain days on the calendar. That, and, and for these, what, what Hallmark has created and promotes what Congress has decreed as, as certain days, they want to take holidays and make them holy days. And they're not. But you talk to some people about some days on the calendar, and you would think that Hallmark and Congress carry the same weight as thus saith the Lord. They don't. I got a call probably 15 probably 15 to 18 years ago, from a lady who watched our services, wasn't a member of the church, watched our services. She was appalled. Appalled was the word she used. Appalled. That in my Sunday sermon, I didn't make reference to the national day of prayer that the president had encouraged us to observe. And I said, well, my response was, I would be appalled if our church family waited on the president to tell them when to pray. Because the Lord, who carries far greater weight than any politician, the Lord has said to his people to pray always and to pray unceasingly. No politician, no Congress, no corporation like Hallmark dictates 
the messaging of the church. Our message is in regard to a kingdom not of this world. This is the one unique place in our world where the gospel message is proclaimed. This happens nowhere else. Do you know if you fall into that rabbit's hole of always wanting to acknowledge every holiday? Last count, and it's been a few years since I've done it, there's, oh, there was 285 holidays on the calendar. 285, and I'm talk, when I say holidays, I'm talking about everything from Administrative Assistance Day uh, to Maintenance Workers Day, and, you know, Sanitation Workers Day, all of that. And everybody, everybody has their own special interest. But for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's every day, every day, not a special day, it's every day that we seek to honor the Lord. And what we have to be careful about doing is, is ascribing to our preferences, ascribing to our non-essentials that somehow we have used to define the life of faith. We have to be very careful about somehow making our non-essential preferences into something that, that defines the Christian faith or that it becomes something as a litmus test to find out who's really serious and who's not? Listen to what Paul says. Here's his theological foundation, verses 7 through 9. Here's the theological foundation for what Paul is saying. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of the dead and of the living. He says this faith is what unifies us. It is this faith, not our incidentals. It is our faith that binds us to the community and the community to the individual. And so Paul would have us to be a people who recognize in the midst of our great diversity, in the midst of our opinions and our preferences, there are some acceptable difference, differences between all of us that have in fact be, had been accepted by the Lord. But you, verse 10, but you, why, why do you judge your, your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. At the judgment seat of God, he's not going to ask Bobby. He's not going to say, Bobby, how well did you evaluate the lives of other believers? How well did you judge others? I have to give an account only for myself, and so do you. And each one of us are in a far better position when we come to realize that there are some acceptable differences in this area of non-essentials for people that have been accepted by the Lord. Second thing is Paul offers some instruction to us in the area of non-essentials Paul would say that, that our freedom 
in Christ, the liberty that we have in Christ, this freedom that we have and that we so often claim is to be moderated by love with responsibility. He says here in notice, as we continue in verse 13, he says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this. Now remember, determination is an activity of the mind. I'm not going to put my energy into judging and evaluating. Now then I'm turning my energies into something else. Determine. Here's the attitude. My determination is to not put on an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. In other words, my freedom and my liberty, and we, we hear this a great deal in our Western culture, those who want to claim their liberty in Christ. Oh, I've been set free from that. But with freedom comes responsibility. That freedom has obligation to others. And in a culture like ours that thinks the greatest virtue is individual freedoms and the exercise of those freedoms, this material is probably going to be objectionable to you. And if you find it objectionable, then, then you, really not, you really have not died to sell. You really don't understand the comprehensive nature of the life of faith. So my, so my freedom is restricted, no longer absolute freedom. My freedom, Paul says, is restrict, restricted when it imperils the faith of another believer. Even if I'm right. Even if I'm right on this issue, even on this non-essential, if, it, if it's not something that, that, that is objectionable, if I'm right, Paul says, I, I let go of my freedom if, it's going, if my practice of it is going to imperil the faith of another. That's the very thing Paul is saying over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He said in verse 8 to the church at Corinth, who was divided over a non-essential issue, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat. And you can feel where it says eat. You can put in whatever non-essential it is that, that you see today. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do not eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Those who still have a conscience over something. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to to stumble. Paul says in verse 14, I know and I'm convinced in the Lord that, and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. Paul is showing, Paul is showing his hand and his, his regard for this issue. In fact, Paul counts himself among, uh, among the strong. And when Paul's talking about the strong, he's talking about those that have no self-condemnation when they do the things for which somebody else has a conscience not to do. 
I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If you, in your conscience, if you're calling something unclean, listen, it is unclean to you. And for you to go against your conscience, that becomes sin to you. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. That's how we are to walk, even in the exercise of our freedom. To do it in a way that is loving, in a way that is aware, in a way that, that is responsible. Do not destroy, your, destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing that is your rich diversity as a people of God with all of your differences and, and your different opinions about lifestyle. Listen, therefore, do not let what is a good thing be spoken of of evil. You've got a unique witness, even in your, in your great diversity, that the, that the world sees you as a unified body. Listen, don't, don't let that be slandered. That is special. Nowhere, in the, nowhere else. Do you find people of, of personal preferences and opinions that come together in unity for the cause of Christ? That is a powerful witness in a world that is warring and divided. To me, it's like settling disagreements in front of your children. I've never bought into the idea that as parents, we ought to have our discussions and settle our disagreements as husband and wife apart from the children. Patty and I went through that early in our marriage with children. You know, sometimes we'd be at the dinner table talking about having a disagreement about, about something. And she would, uh, you know, as maybe his voice is, is, well, my voice as it's raising uh, or something. She would say, well, why don't we just talk about that later? Or why don't we wait until the kids have gone to bed, then we'll talk about that. I said, no, why don't we just let them see how two adults handle issues? Why don't we let our children see how two Christian parents settle our, our disagreements, our conflicts, and how we come to a place where we, can, where we can stand together? I think there's great value in that. And a part of that was based on a friend who shared with me about his children, who had, who, adult children who had had multiple marriages and divorces. And he said, you know, I think I made a mistake. I think my wife and I made a mistake. We never let our children see us disagree or have an argument we always did it in the bedroom away from them and in talking to those those adult children some of them even said to me you know when when we disagreed in our marriage when we had an argument and a fight I just thought our marriage was broken because I never saw my parents have a disagreement so when we had one in our marriage I just thought it was broken I made a mental note of that and as a young father, I wanted my children to see how conflicts were resolved between two people that were committed to the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, you're modeling something to the world. You're showing the world something that is unique and different. For the kingdom of God is not eating, verse 17, and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and is received by God, welcomed by God, and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of another. Paul's saying, I'm, listen, I'm with you, the strong. I agree that these are non-essential issues. I don't have the same hang-up as those who are weak. But listen, I've abandoned all of that. I've given that up because my role is one of building up. 
the making of peace, building up of another. Do not tear down the work of God. God is doing a work in people. Don't tear that down for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Yes, there are things that are neutral. And, and whether they are good or bad, evil or good, that's in the heart of the individual, their attitude towards it. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he is eating not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Again, do not assume that your preference, that how you have defined your faith by these incidentals, do not assume that that is the litmus test for other believers. That person is seeking to honor the Lord. These over here that have liberty, they are seeking to honor the Lord. But those who have liberty among those among whom Paul considers himself, listen, I've abandoned that so that I might build up some brothers. That is, we can, we can move them from where they are to where they could be. And there, there is, listen, I, it's not a subtle critique by Paul of the weak. There's not, it's not subtle at all. There's a kind of critique here that Paul, Paul knows they're missing out on the righteousness and the peace and the joy that their faith ought to bring to them. Listen, Paul's theological conviction is, is that he is justified by God. He's not justified by a diet. He's not justified by what he drinks or doesn't drink. His theological conviction and his position is that he is justified by God. And this is huge for a former Pharisee. But he realizes that this is a bigger salvation than the one, that you, have than the one you have created for yourself based upon incidentals. And Paul's hope is, is that these who are weak will become strong. He realizes that God is doing a work. And you and I who are strong, we're to be a part of this work. I'm willing to forego. Listen, this isn't forever. I'm willing to forego. This is just for season. People are going to grow. People are going to experience seasons in life. And things that, and things that, that they had a conscience about, these non-essentials with growth and experience in life, most of those things will go to the wayside. But I don't want, back here early on, I don't want to be a detriment to that. I want to be a part of the building up. I want to be a part of this work that God is doing. Listen, be very careful. Whenever you're always holding forth your opinion on non-essentials, it's, it's very hard to express your preferences without, without disparaging the others. I see this among young worship pastors sometimes. They'll talk about... They'll talk about in, their, in speaking of their preference for, for their music today, they will say something like, well, you know, our music today is singing to God. You know, the old hymns, that, that was just singing about God. Well, for someone who, who loves that genre, who loves hymns, I would find that very offensive. 
Because when I sang hymns, when I first started as a, as a pastor, when I was singing hymns, I was doing it to the honor of God. I was doing that, doing that to, to honor and to praise him, to magnify him, to glorify him. And now you're going to belittle that by telling me I was just singing about God. I wasn't singing to God. Listen, you got to be real careful. The arrogance of those kinds of statements, they tear down. They don't, they don't build up. And we're going to wrap up right here, right now. And my hope and my prayer is for us when we leave this place, that as we go out to our community, that we will not reflect a faith that has been defined by non-essentials, by our personal preferences, but that in our unity in Christ Jesus and the gospel itself, that the world might see us as a voice of unity, proclaiming Christ and him crucified, that others might be drawn to him. Father, might we truly capture the grandeur of your salvation, a salvation that is so much bigger than ours, a salvation that is so far beyond the incidentals and the non-essentials that we through our human our human traditions have sought to attach to it. But that, Father, we might be found a people unified, even in the midst of our differences. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.